You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Thanks, Mike. And just to be clear, uh, at least this time, I'm not the one whose nose was bleeding, just to be clear. I know that's hard to understand and believe, but for real, this time, it wasn't me. I do want to welcome you to worship. My name is Eric Barton, and I'm delighted to get to be with you and to pastor the downtown campus of Bethel Bible Church. I love to go to church. Of all the places in the world, this, this morning is where the people of God come together and where, by promise, by covenant, God himself, by his spirit, is present among us. Regardless of whether or not we feel that way or not, it is truth that God himself is present by his spirit because of the finished work of the Son. It is the will of the Father. And so as we gather this morning, I just want to invite you to pause for a moment. I know there's a whole lot of things that are upcoming on your schedule. Your busyness ramp has gotten very steep as we've gotten into mid-November. But for these moments that we have... I'm going to invite you to deliberately ready your heart, your mind, your body, that you would be able to connect with God, His Spirit, His people, His Word. That's what we're all about this morning. And so you've already heard our passage read for the morning. I want to start off, since we've already heard the passage read, I want to start off discussing this idea, this notion of offense. Now, not like an actual wooden fence. I mean, offense, okay? I want to talk about offense. About two years ago, I had a, uh, I had a hard conversation with my cardiologist. Now, some of the details are understandably a little bit fuzzy because it was two years ago, and B, I wasn't really paying attention, and C, didn't really care until it was way too late. But my cardiologist said some pretty hard things. He said, Mr. Barton, you have a tremendous amount of heart disease. To which I responded, ooh, tremendous. That's good, right? Like, I love things that are tremendous. Tremendous is awesome. No. He said, I mean, like, I've never seen someone with such bad vascular health. Someone who has been able to function reasonably well up until now. Which, of course, how would you respond to that? I was like, wait, so you're saying I'm kind of awesome for lasting this long? He said, no, Mr. Barton, I'm saying, this is not a joke, I can't imagine the trajectory of life choices that led a man your age to be in my office with this kind of condition. (laughs) That's clearer. (laughs) So I kind of, you know, not out loud, but under my breath, I'm thinking, I I think I'm kind of offended by that. And I felt really awkward for having brought the entire brick of Velveeta into his office with me. I'm like, really, dog? I don't get it. I don't understand what's the problem. You want that? Well, several months later, another one of our members was in the hospital in that very same cath lab getting a heart catheterization. And one of our other pastors walked in to see him. And uh, the patient looked over and saw one of our pastors and said, hey, hey, doc, that's such and such. He's one of our pastors. And the doc's busy doing what docs do. And I can't imagine the view down there, bless his heart. And he's doing his thing. And the patient says, yeah, that's, that's so-and-so. He's one of the pastors at Bethel Bible Church. To which my cardiologist says, oh, Bethel, 
then you must know Eric Barton. Hello, HIPAA violation. <laughs> it's okay, though. I've given grace. We're clear. He said, you must know Eric Barton, the pastor, a friend of mine, chuckled. He goes, oh, yeah, I know that guy. Doctor says, man, that guy was sick. He goes, I've never seen it like that. He goes, in fact, that guy was so sick, I put myself on statin medications. I was so scared. So you see, sometimes it's okay, sometimes it's necessary to be offended, and sometimes even that offense can bless somebody else. That's what happens from time to time. So not only that, but as we uh, receive and perceive the offenses that sometimes come our way, our hope is that, yeah, we're going to embrace an offense from our passage this morning. We're going to conclude, Lord willing, our study through John chapter 6, and we're going to see that Jesus is more than willing to offend people, and that they are willing to be offended. Everybody everywhere has a default assumption about what it takes to live forever. But today, our passage is going to make it crystal clear, unambiguously, powerfully pertinent that Jesus is sovereign in salvation. So let me just say, that's our big idea for the morning. Jesus is sovereign in salvation. And when I say salvation, I mean something very specific and very particular. Salvation, soteria in Greek, means an event and a process in which a person is brought into right relationship with God. Now that's deeper, thicker, meatier, and richer than simply salvation is when you go to heaven when you die. That is a complete misappropriation of the enormity, the glory, the grandeur of salvation. Salvation is an event and a process in which a person is brought into right relationship with God and Jesus is sovereign over that salvation. Now we've been walking through the book of John, wow, this entire fall semester. We've said that the entire purpose and thrust of John is that his readership would believe that Jesus is the Christ. Not just that his last name is Christ, that he is God of God. He is Godishness incarnate. That he is the one that God sent to not defeat the Romans. He is the one that God sent to take on toe-to-toe sin and death. And he wins. John's expectation unabashedly is that you read his writing and that you believe. Now we started John chapter 6 way back on November 4th. It is the longest chapter in John, and it starts off with a bang. Jesus amasses to himself perhaps as many as 20,000 people. We are told that there are 5,000 men, which means if their wives and children are with them, and they would have been, we're looking at at least 15 to 20,000 people, and Jesus is going to feed them. Up in the northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee and the Golan Heights, Jesus does an incredible miracle. He feeds these people. Jesus is on the front edge of creating the very first gigachurch in the world. We're talking 20,000 people. Boom! This is the greatest church plant ever. Way to go, Jesus! And to really frost the cake, he finishes off the day by walking on water. Hello, let's call that guy's our next pastor, right? He can feed everybody in the church, and then when he's done, he just walks across water. That's what I'm talking about just to demonstrate that he is life, that he is sovereignty. 
And then he launches into this really lengthy discourse, which is why I have said there is absolutely no way that Jesus had an elder meeting the very next day. Because Jesus apparently is not interested at all in the number game of nickels and noses, right? Jesus is going to start with about 20,000 people, and by the end of the day, he's going to preach them down to 11. Now, that's a, that's a hard one to explain to your staff or your elders. Like, man, it was so great, we had 20,000, and by the time we passed the plate, there was 11. Ours go to 11. I see that the elders wouldn't think that was funny either. Jesus is remarkably unconcerned. He's not really worried about all of that, all the way down to 11. Now, Jesus is gonna launch into a lengthy discourse saying, hey, listen, Moses, Moses, he's your guy, but he ain't it, and I'll tell you why. I'm the greater Moses. You think Moses fed your fathers in the wilderness, but it wasn't about that. It wasn't Moses, it was God, and what they ate didn't make them last forever. They died, but I am the one who has come from heaven. I'm a new Moses. I'm a better Moses. I myself am the provision. You eat this bread, you don't die. You live forever. And they get kind of freaked out. Like, what is this guy talking about? Human responsibility, Jesus says, is on you. Nobody comes unless the Father draws, but if you don't believe, it's your responsibility. And we as readers, then as now, have a tension. And we don't like tension. We would like to relieve the tension. The Bible is not concerned with your tension. In fact, an organism without tension dies. So wherever you want to fall on either side of the equation, fine, be there, because Jesus is not interested in obliterating the tension. Yes, Jesus is sovereign in salvation, and he's gonna be very clear that the work of the believer is to believe. It is their responsibility. Belief can only happen when the Father grants that to occur. And Jesus says, this is what belief looks like. It is taking the life of the Son of Man into you. I mean, it's like, it's like so gruesome and graphic, it almost sounds cannibalistic, but he's speaking metaphorically and spiritually, and he will say so again later on in our passage this morning, which led St. Augustine a few hundred years later to put it this way. If you have believed, you have eaten. Now, that's very good news. If you have believed, you have eaten. So we walked through these first 59 verses of John chapter 6, and two weeks ago, our big idea was Jesus is more than enough. Whatever you think you need, whatever you think you have to have, Jesus is more than enough. And then last week, we walked through the middle part of the passage, and what we decided was that the life of God is in Christ. It's God's will that you have the life of God, and that life is exclusively in Christ. And so we're going to conclude the chapter today, Lord willing. And again, our big idea for the morning is that Jesus is sovereign in salvation. I'm going to pick up reading. Stephanie's already read the passage for us. I'm going to start again in verse 60. We're just going to very quickly walk through the text, see what we can glean, and then we'll see if we can apply it to our lives. So chapter 6 and verse 60, if you've got your Bibles, I encourage you to open those up. When many of his disciples heard it, what is it that they heard? They've just heard this long, lengthy discourse that Jesus says, it's not about provision from God, it's about a person who himself is the provision of God. I'm the better Moses, I'm the new Moses, I'm the one that's come from heaven. And when they heard it, they said, this is a hard teaching, this is a scleros logos, it's a harsh abrasive word. It, it, it's, uh, it's offensive. It, it, it rubs the wrong way. It's not meeting our expectations. See, 
frustration is an expectation not met. They have an expectation for this Messiah. That he's going to come in, he's going to drive out Rome, he's going to bring all of their soldiers home, he's going to lower the price of gas, he's going to, I mean, all these things, he's going to, everyone's going to get educated, taxes are going to go down, we're going to not have a wall, all of these things are going to happen when Jesus finally gets into power. Because they're thinking in terms of election. Like, this is the guy that we choose. Jesus is thinking in terms of election. Y'all are the ones that I choose. You see? And all the difference in the world. And so they're frustrated because their expectations are not met. They're going to get angry because their goals are being blocked. They say, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? More accurately, who has the power to accept this? Who has the ability? Who has the capacity to receive this? This is difficult. Almost like, Jesus, we've got budget to make and you're saying inappropriate things. Don't be saying these things. People are going to leave. This is awkward. I know you have felt the same way sitting in those chairs. (laughs) And yet I persist. Well, they say, this is a hard, hard saying. Who can listen to this? But Jesus, again, we've already seen several times throughout the chapter, these uh, the people are known by God, by Jesus. Jesus has a supernatural knowledge. He knows the hearts of men. Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Now, let me be clear here. These disciples that he's talking about is not the same group as the 12 will be very clear in verse 67 that he's going to have a different separate conversation with the 12. When he says his disciples, mathetes, there are a bunch of people in Galilee that are following him around. And they're following him around because of what he does. They're following him around for what he might be able to do for them. They are not following him around because they love him. They are not following him around because they are loyal to him. They are following him around because they perceive him to be a cosmic blessing machine. And I, I know exactly how that feels. I, I call that Monday afternoon, usually. When I let my eyes fall and my heart gets hardened, and I just like, hey, 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 come on, God, let's, let's, let's get on with the good stuff, right? Jesus will not have it. So these disciples are the ones that Jesus asks in verse 61, knowing that they are grumbling. Our favorite word in New Testament congregational dynamics, gangudzman, gangudzman, gang. It's onomatopoeia. It sounds like what it is. It's all the people are going, gangudzman, gangudzman, gangudzman. And they're grumbling, just like the Israelites in the Old Testament. They just grumble. They don't get what they want. They begin to gangudzman. The Yiddish equivalent is they're kvetching. They're just gonna gripe about it no matter what, Right? Jesus, knowing this in himself, said that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Do you receive scandalize? Do you you get tripped up? Does this put you in a box you don't want to be in? It's the same word that Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 1.23. The gospel is a stumbling block. It is an offense. And Jesus asks his disciples, are you offended by this? But what is it that they are offended by? Are they offended by his conversation about eating his flesh and drinking his blood? Well, probably, yeah. There are some that are freaking out, like, okay, I'm pretty sure he just told us to not eat kosher, ew, ew, ew. And so there's probably some of them that are offended by that. But deeply, what they are offended by is that this guy claims to be a new and better Moses. 
that this guy claims to be from heaven. That this guy claims that the work of salvation is simply to believe on him, namely the one that's standing right in front of them. That's a hard, that's offensive. Well, who do you think you are? You're a, you're a carpenter from Nazareth, and now you're telling me that you are the bread of heaven? I mean, where do you get, who do you think you are? Jesus says, you, you, you take offense at this, do you? It's a hard thing for you to get. Of course it is. It's a very hard thing for them to embrace. Then he says, well, <laughs> you ain't seen nothing yet. That's the new Eric translation, but that's essentially what he says. Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Wait a minute, you think it's hard to hear that I'm the new Moses, that I'm the one who is the provision from heaven, that I come from heaven? Well, what if you see the Son of Man totally violate your expectations for your Messiah? You want your Messiah to drive out Rome and hunger. You don't understand. You think I am Messiah and I am prophet, and you're right, but you don't understand what Messiah and prophet must come to do. What about when you see him stripped naked, scourged front and back, slapped, punched, beaten, beard ripped out, spat upon, hung naked on a cross, left to die. How are you going to feel about it then? Because that is my route to return to where I have always been for all eternity. The Son of Man will be lifted up, he will ascend, and then he will ascend. You think that's offensive? Wait till you see me scourged. How are you going to feel then? Well, wisely, Jesus does not even give them a chance to answer. Verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. I'm talking in spiritual terms. Yet again, this is a direct hit against sacramentalism. That says, sacramentalism says, that in communion, in the Eucharist, in the Lord's Supper, the elements literally turn to flesh and blood. Unfortunately, the Bible is crystal clear in saying, nuh-uh, because he says, the flesh is no help at all. I'm talking in spirit terms. By the way, none of Jesus' disciples, none of them, are indwelled by God's Holy Spirit yet because Jesus has not died, buried, rose again, ascended, and sent the Spirit. So the Spirit is leading them into some things, but even they can't fully understand because they're not Spirit-indwelled people. <gasps> but then there's you. You who have His Spirit. You who are in Christ. You who have His Word. You who have the congregation. You got great big Spirit brains. Do you see? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Wait a second. Wait a second. Wait a second. I'm a Jew. Wait a second. I'm of the tribe of Dan. I am the tribe of Gad. I am the tribe of Judah. That's my heritage. This is my birthright. Jesus says, that actually counts for nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Again, not literally talking about sacramentalism. Literal blood, literal flesh, Jesus says, no. I'm talking metaphorically, it's spirit. This is how to have eternal life, which is not what they were expecting him to deliver. I said this last week, I want to say it again. It is not what they cared about. But how can people not care about eternal life? Ah, because they assumed they already had it by their birthright. And Jesus says, you don't have it. You think you do. You think you've worked at it. You think you were born into it. You think you have it by location of residence. You do not. Have you ingested the Son of Man is the question. Verse 64. Oh, this is not how to build a high attendance Sunday. This is, this is not how you do it. Verse 64. But there are some of you who do not believe. Okay, that's not super pastoral there, Jesus. 
For Jesus knew from the beginning those who were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. What in the world? Jesus has always known who doesn't believe. He's not threatened in the slightest. He knows those who have gathered around him. He knows who the hangers on are. He knows who is looking at him as a provider of blessing rather than a blesser and a king and a lord and a savior and a brother and a friend. He even knows that there is one among them that will go beyond unbelief all the way to betrayal. And it's fascinating. This is John chapter 6. Judas will not execute his betrayal until John chapter 18. But Jesus is already aware. And John, sitting in Ephesus some 50 years later, could not have known at this time who the betrayer is. But 50 years later, John certainly knows who the betrayer is, and he wants us to understand something. That's why John includes this where he does. Some 12 chapters before the actual betrayal, John wants us to understand something about Jesus and his sovereignty in salvation. Um, Verse 64 again, but there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew who from the beginning would, uh, did not believe, and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you, that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Nobody can come. Just to make sure we don't miss this, Jesus is going to say, listen, God has his reasons for saving people, but those people aren't the reasons. Is that offensive? It is to me. Like, I mean, oh, come on, Jesus. I mean, I, you know, I'm bilingual. I mean, that counts for something, right? No, no. God had his reason for saving me, and I am not it. I'm a little bit offended by that until I look in the mirror and do some quick inventory and recognize the enormity of the sin of which I'm capable. And if you don't know all the sin of which I'm capable, you buy me some coffee downstairs and then put on some earmuffs because it's going to disgust you. But it, that's what I bring to the table is my sin. He continues on, verse 65, he says, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. By the way, I think this is a great time to iterate that all of the Godhead comes to bear in salvation. Look at what Jesus the Son is disclosing and describing. That it is the Spirit that gives life, and I am here to do the will of my Father. It is about the work of the Father. It is about the work of the Son. It is about the work of the Spirit. Salvation and redemption from a life of sin and death and separation is such a big deal that the entirety of the Godhead has to come to bear. And by the way, we as evangelicals, I think sometimes we need to be disabused of an errant notion. Sometimes we think of God, the Father, as this generally cranky guy with a long white beard sitting on an awesome chair that's generally disappointed in who we are. But then hip, cool, awesome Jesus shows up and he's like, no, hey, it's cool, Dad. I got this. I got this. Don't be so mad, Dad. They're with me. It's a terrible misunderstanding of how the Father feels about us. It's not like Jesus is the big brother and the spirit is like the woman in the house and they're having to stand between God the Father and this smart-mouthed teenager that I am. No. It is God the Father's will to redeem and to restore fallen and broken humanity. Immediately after the fall in Genesis 3, God the Father gets back to work. He's not cranky, disappointed, nor disinterested. He's crazy about us. 
So much so that he's willing to fracture fellowship with his own uncreated son and send him to die in the place of those that he created who will ultimately shame him. That's how much the Father loves us. And this is what Jesus is saying. I am here because of the Father's will. He's not some cranky, disengaged being. He loves us. Well, that's very good news, and Jesus is going to continue on here. Verse 66, no, I don't take it any significance whatsoever that this is chapter 6, verse 66. 666, no, 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 no. Chapter verses were added 1,500 years after this was written. And by the way, it's probably 616 in Revelation. But whatever, anyway, chapter 6, verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They turned back. This is the difference between sincere interest and mere curiosity. Listen. Jesus is going to say, nobody can come unless the Father draws them. And so if there is anyone, yourself included, or anybody else, that is showing the slightest interest in the things of God and Christ, that means that the Spirit is drawing them. Now that is not the same as being merely curious about it because someone tried to scare the hell out of you in seventh grade at camp. That's not the same thing. I'm talking about, do you have the slightest interest that I believe that this God has done a thing and, and he's offering eternal life. I don't understand everything, but I'm, but I'm interested. I'm, I'm, I, can't, I can't get resolution. That is a clear indicator that the Spirit of God is drawing. And everyone that the Spirit of God calls, Jesus says, I will never drive away. So you keep praying for those people that you know that are like that. I know you have a hundred stories of someone that went to camp, made a decision, or vacation Bible school, and there were three, and someone told them to repeat some words, and they did, and they were a Christian, and now they're not a Christian anymore. I'm not so sure that they were. I think someone bribed them with graham crackers. Listen, I'm cheap. I'll do a lot of things for graham crackers and red punch, okay? I don't know what happened there. I'm just saying if there's a person who is showing sincere interest in the deep things of God, then the Spirit is drawing them. And that's tremendous grace. Let me continue. Verse 67, so Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? I want you to imagine the scene. They're up in Capernaum. They've had 20,000-ish people, perhaps, circling and cycling around, and they've all scuffled their feet, and they've all walked off. Even some of the ones that were followers, some of those that were disciples, now they're gone too. Now it's just the 12 that remain, and Jesus unflinchingly asks him in verse 67, do you want to go away as well? Now, it's not that Jesus doesn't know the answer to the question. He knows this is for their sake. They need the opportunity to articulate an answer. Simon Peter answered him. Now, let me look. Simon Peter doesn't have a whole lot of bright spots before the resurrection. He's generally the guy that is the first failure. Like, he's not going to let anybody beat him to the punch of messing up. It's always Peter. But listen to what Peter says. He kind of nails this. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Now, on the one hand, that sounds pretty good. I mean, on the one hand, it sort of demonstrates a, a desperation. Like, Lord, we're, we're all in. We, we've fully committed. We've got no place else to go. And on the other hand... I mean, is that really affection? Let me, let me encourage you men in the room this afternoon when your wife asks you, do you love me? Don't respond thus. 
Well, who else am I going to love? I mean, look at me. I'm middle-aged. How is she going to feel about that? I mean, perhaps you could ratchet up a little bit more affection. Then, well, what else am I going to do? I mean, there's not a game on TV. Let's not say, well, what else am I going to do? I get it on the one hand. Yes, there's desperation and a declaration of dependence. That's great. But Peter's also going... Man, I'm out of options here. You are certifiably cray-cray. I don't understand everything, but we're pretty sure that you have the words of life. You have the words of eternal life. And then Peter does continue on in a much clearer, cleaner confession. He says, and we have believed and have come to know. And those are central words in the gospel of John. That's the whole theme and thesis of his gospel. So that you will believe and know. Peter is demonstrating what it looks like to believe and know. I don't understand everything, but I'm reliant. Not everything makes sense, but I'm standing on it as if it's my only hope. That's belief. That's knowing. The question is, do you? Doesn't mean you've got it all figured out and you've got charts on your desk and you know the timing of the rapture and you know how many angels it takes to drive a Volkswagen. I don't know, but do you believe? Do you know him? Now, you might expect with this great confession, Peter says, we believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's a pretty good title. We think maybe somewhere someone was using that as a title of the Messiah. It appears in no records. No one else ever says that. <laughs> Except for one, one time. It's used in the Gospel of Mark and it's, uh, you know, spoken by demons. <laughs> so... I don't know, Peter, you might want to sharpen that pencil a little bit more. Now, you might think that when Peter says, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. You are the Holy One of God. You might think that Jesus would give him like this awesome high five, celebrate Peter's words, and give him the most epic Galilean chest bump in history. But no, it's really remarkable, and it's a little bit of a surprise to us. It might even be offensive to some of you. Look at verse 70. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you? Jesus will permit not even the slightest whiff of pride nor pretense. And that's, that's real good, Peter. That didn't come from you. That's because I've spoken the words of life to you. Earlier, in Matthew chapter 16, they find themselves way up in the north in Caesarea Philippi. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, this came to you by the spirit, not from you, because you wouldn't have known that. And then about three verses later, he calls him Satan. So, you know, you got that working for you. Here, different setting. This is in Capernaum. Jesus says, hey, that's great and all, but I chose you. Don't think that you had something to do, that you're the sharpest knife in the drawer. I chose you because Jesus is sovereign in salvation. And yet one of you is devil. Not is a devil. It's literally one of you is Satan. One of you is diabolos. Diabolos is where we get our word for devil. And it means one who shoots through. He's an enemy, an adversary, an opponent. One who puts holes in you. I chose you. And one of you is trying to put holes in me. And you're going to do it. Now, probably none of them, including the betrayer, actually knows who it is at this juncture. But verse 71, we're not going to be given any doubt. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he 
one of the twelve was going to betray him. That is pretty amazing. The betrayal won't happen again, as I've said, until chapter 18. But John wants us to know that Jesus doesn't ever react. Jesus is never caught off guard. Jesus is sovereign in salvation. So much so that he even chose the one that would betray him. Jesus always has Satan by the neck right where he wants him. Jesus is telling us here, one of you is going to betray me. In other words, my plan from the very beginning has not been to drive out Rome, nor hunger, nor any other sort of political oppression. My plan is to die. Because there's a much heavier, greater enemy. It is sin and death, and I will become both. Which leads us then to our first of four very quick implications. First of four quick implications, number one goes like this. It may look like losing, but Jesus always wins. It may look like losing. This is a very long chapter, 71 verses, and it starts off with 20,000 people. Woo! This is what I'm talking about, Jesus. We're about to take this thing by storm. It ends with 11. The soundtrack goes thus. Wah, wah, wah. Whoa, this doesn't look like it's going well at all. And yet John writes this right in the center of his gospel, so that you will believe. So that when we encounter things in our lives that look like it's off, it's wrong, that nobody's at the helm, no, no, no. When it looks like losing, Jesus always wins. Let me put it another way. Jesus gets it done. Jesus is not concerned with the number game of nickels and noses. In fact, with those remaining 11 knuckle-dragger Galilean fishermen, <laughs> he changes the world. And literally, billions of people have come to faith because of the work, ministry, and writings of these 11 guys. Ephesians 2 says that we, the church, are built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. The apostles! Guys like Bartholomew and Nathaniel and Peter. Peter! Yeah. Jesus can do an awful lot with not much. Praise God. Jesus always gets it done. He has never once in the history of eternity been threatened by Satan in the slightest. He always has him exactly where he wants him. Jesus has got him by the throat here saying, You you think you're scoring a hit? I want you to know, Satan, you're going to take me to the cross. And you think you're going to win. But as they're nailing me to the boards, you're losing forever. Every blow they land, you're losing. Oh, it hurts. <laughs> no mistake. But I've got you by the throat the entire time. Which is why Satan will beg him, please, please don't go to the cross. And Jesus says, I'm dragging you all the way there. Jesus gets it done. It may look like losing, but Jesus always wins. How does that translate into our life? Listen, if this is how Jesus orchestrates his own life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and sending of the Spirit, he can handle the phone calls that you and I get. It may look like we're losing. It might look like this isn't going to turn around, but that's only because we don't have the eternal vantage point that God has. And so we preach a sermon to our soul in advance. And we thank God for every conceivable outcome, Philippians 4, so that whatever happens on the other end of that phone call, we've already thanked God for it. Because Jesus always wins, even when it looks like losing. Second point, 
The more that is revealed to us about Jesus, the more we are responsible to Jesus. Jesus continues to make it clear who he is, why he has come. And those who claim to follow him are forced into deciding what they're going to do about it. The more you come to church, the more you listen to podcasts, listen to music, the more you go to Bible studies, the more you do whatever you do, and more is revealed to you about Jesus, more is required of you as far as a decision is concerned. Listen, his first miracle in John chapter 2 of transforming water into wine, all the people really knew was that he had the power to do this. That was pretty exciting. That was pretty cool. But only a small group of people way up in Cana of Galilee knew about it, but increasingly he begins to reveal more and more about who he is and what he does. And what he doesn't do, and perhaps, perhaps more irritatingly, the things that he says. Ugh. And so we can't just let it go. We can't just ignore it. It demands that we decide in our hearts, in our minds, as to whether or not this is true. And if it's true, then marvelously, if we believe that it's true, it's incredibly because the Spirit is drawing because of the will of the Father. And if it's true then it only makes logical, rational sense that we completely adhere our lives to His. It's the only thing that makes sense. If it's true and we reject it, then the absolute arrogance and a declaration that you and I have a better system in place to deal with our eternity is all that we're projecting. If it's true and I go, yeah, but you know what? I still think there's a better way. I still think I can find another path up the mountain. Good luck with all of that. Third implication, Jesus loves you so much that he doesn't care if you like him. <laughs> See, Jesus is not like me. All I really care about is that you like me. Jesus loves you so much that he doesn't care if you like him. Now, that's good news. In other words, Jesus is willing to risk offending you if it means providing every opportunity for you to hear the truth. See, through his word and his spirit, it's like Jesus says to us, man, not only do you have a ton of heart disease, but pretty much everything you about you is sin-soaked and nasty. And you go, ow, hold on a second. I'm actually kind of awesome. And he goes, no, unless you mean like in the Old Testament awesome sense where people want to fall down and cry. Yeah, you're that kind of awesome. And you go, well, wait a second. Wait a it's offensive. It is. It's kind of harsh. Because my entire world is trying to convince me that I'm better than I am, that I'm some sort of, you know, I haven't made it into a Marvel superhero movie yet, but that's just because I haven't come to Tyler yet. I mean, come on, it's coming, right? It's sort of what my darkness and depravity wants to tell me. But then Jesus comes along and says, but listen, it's okay, because I am the perfect human specimen, and I'm willing to offer you my life for yours. And so to accept and is to, to embrace that offense. I need it. He has it. He's offering. It goes like this. I wish I wasn't such a phenomenal loser, but I clearly and obviously am. So Jesus isn't trying to win our favor. He's offering the Father his favor. And Jesus is willing to say the hard things to people, knowing that it will greatly upset and offend them, but it isn't just because he's mean. It's because he's actually very supremely loving. To say to people like Israel and Judas, you reject me because you think you're gods and that you are taught by God, but you are not, is deeply offensive. Judas and all of Israel, you think you're taught by God, you think you've earned his favor, you think you're doing the right things, but you have earned nothing. That's deeply offensive. And to some of you, you might hear that and go, well, now hold on a second, I pay my taxes, I don't speed through school zones, I only watch one news network, I'm owed something here. God says you're not. 
We want to all keep that very, very, very clear. It completely dismantles their worldview and their operating identity, and it forces us to ask the question, how dare you? How, how can I have been trusting and counting on me for all of these years, on my nation, on my family, on my career? So we can either take offense at all of these words and try to convince God that we are actually way better off than he thinks, or we can take offense at these words and allow them to land and challenge us and convict us and to take a hard look in the mirror and see if there's any pride in my salvation. The moment I begin to think, God, you're so welcome, so lucky to have me on your team, there's grace for that too. Repent, repent, repent. Praise be to God that you chose me. Fourth implication, and this is a quick one, but it's a hard one. Not all disciples are disciples. The word mephetes simply means follower or apprentice. But clearly, not all disciples are disciples. Some people are pursuing for the purpose of blessings, not a disciple. Some people are pursuing for the fear of going to hell, not a disciple. Some people are in the crowd because they have their own ambition of Jesus supercharging their mission, not a disciple. Some people are involved simply because they don't know what else to do or where else to go or it's just a part of their social conditioning, not a disciple. Listen, Jesus is God. He is glorious. What do you think about when you think about Jesus? Because that's like the most important thing about you. He is good. He is glorious. He is gracious. A true disciple is a mini-me of Jesus. And that means that he has aligned his will with that of the Father. He is indwelled by the Spirit of God because of the finished work of the Son whom we eagerly await to return. And in the meantime, disciples go about the world doing what Jesus would do if he was living his life through them because that's his plan. But not all disciples are disciples, which begs the question, are you a disciple? Or is Jesus still your best shot at getting your agenda accomplished? Let me just say this as directly as I can. What's going to happen when that Jesus doesn't come through? Which is inevitable because that Jesus does not exist. Jesus is God and he is sovereign in salvation and I can tell you with the full authority and weight of scripture and the spirit and his people that he is worth it. So I invite you to believe. To not try to map out your own course up the mountain, there is only one. Jesus is more than enough. The life of God is in Christ and Jesus is sovereign in salvation. And so if there's even the slightest flicker of, man, but I want that, I, I, I don't understand. That's okay. That's what we're here for. We want to talk with you about that. I invite you to believe. To not understand everything necessarily, but to believe, to take into you the gospel, the great story, the awesome announcement of what God has done in Christ to redeem man to himself and to one another. To say, I believe it. And for the rest of you who have been believers for a long time, I know you are encountering difficult circumstances. It might look like losing, but Jesus always wins. Be encouraged. Let me pray for us. Father, we do thank you for John chapter 6, the whole chapter, the whole book, for how you have spoken to us through it. And I pray, God, that you will continue to encourage these, your people. They will have a right view of you, of your son, of your spirit, of your word, of your people. And if there's one or two or three or four more, God, here this morning who don't know you, would you move irresistibly by your spirit and lead them into a saving knowledge of your son, Jesus, 
that they would step out of death into life and that they would have community here authentically and that their lives would take on ever increasingly the, the scent and the aroma of your son Jesus. And Father, for the rest of us who have been believers for a very long time, that we have uh, allowed our eyes to fall and we've begun to think that, well, that we're quite a catch. And if the people in hell were as smart as us, they wouldn't be there. God, would you disabuse us of that error and remind us that you loved us from before the foundations of the earth. You had our names written in the book of life. And so we thank you for that grace, Father. We ask for those that are not in Christ that you would do for them what you have done for us because you are good and we can trust you. So we pray all these things, Father, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks so much for being here at first service. You get no extra points for that, but I'm sure glad you're here. Let me ask you to stand for word of benediction, and then we will dismiss you. If you will abide for just one moment, I would like to benedict from the book of Jude, half-brother of Jesus. He says it this way, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. God bless you. are dismissed. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.